This podcast may contain graphic and or explicit content that may not be suitable for some listeners, especially kids like me. <laughs> Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to the Real Life Podcast brought to you by the Thin Blue Line for Women. In this podcast, We open up and talk about real-life issues as they relate to first responders. It's raw, it's real, and it's about time. I'm Tamara, your host. Thanks for joining me. COVID-19 has really changed America and changed our world. And I wanted to reach out to you all and say that I hope everyone's doing okay. I hope you're staying at home as much as you possibly can to avoid spreading this highly contagious and easily spreadable virus. Reported illnesses range from mild symptoms to severe illness and even death. It's absolutely horrible. And the symptoms can appear anywhere between two and 14 days after exposure. So that's kind of scary. Like if you go to the store because you need something and you get home, then you have anxiety for two to 14 days. (laughs) Anyway, we're going to hear in a quick second from Detective Blue Line. That's his Twitter handle. Detective Blue Line is going to tell us all what he's been doing during this COVID-19. Hi, this is Detective Blue Line, and I want to say hi. Um, With the quarantine, I have been working, and through work, I've been, uh, I'm a criminal investigator with our police department. We've been getting inundated with fraud cases. Um, Also, our patrol unit is down to a skeleton crew right now, so whenever they get a hot call, I throw the vest on, go out and assist them. Uh, When I get done work. Uh, The first thing I do before I even go in the house is take off my shoes because the shoes actually carry uh, germs. And uh, once I get into the house, I am uh, doing laundry. Uh, Everything I wore that day, I make sure I get washed. Um, So basically my work week is uh, going to work, handling fraud cases, assisting uh, the patrol, coming home, doing laundry, and going to sleep. Uh, I hope everyone is staying safe, and uh, I hope to talk to you again soon. My guest today is Lori Cooper. She's the daughter of a Columbus police officer who was shot in the line of duty in 1972 during a burglary call. Now, she was only nine years old when this happened. Um, There were three burglars, but one of them named Charles Hayes fled the area, did not attend trial, and ultimately escaped justice. Lori, thank you for talking with me today. Hi, Tamara. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Good. Can you please walk the listeners through the incident the day your father was shot in 1972? Oh, absolutely. What happened was there was a neighborhood, um, just a nice middle-class neighborhood. Um, you know, back in the early 70s, everybody kind of knew everybody. And these folks, um, 
you know, live next door to each other and they, they, they worship together at the same church and it happened to be Bible study night. And these three men, um, took advantage of, you know, these folks being away from home and just went into one house after another would be in and out in about eight minutes and grab, you know, all their possessions that were worth anything to them. And, at about the point at which my dad and his partner received the call, my dad and his partner happened upon two of the three men. The third man was a getaway driver. And a, a, a foot pursuit a, a ensued. My father chased you know, one man, his partner, the other. And it was very dark. It was 1030. In 1972, there weren't a lot of street lights or anything. And at point blank range, this man with a nine millimeter, when my dad caught up to him, turned around and shot him. But my dad was smart enough to turn his torso to avoid being struck in, in, in the chest. And so he took it in the, uh, in the arm, a through and through shot. So did they wear vests back then? Body armor? No, they okay. did not. He had on the old Tamara, you remember the old um I think here they called them class A dress uniforms. Yes. But they were uh -huh. the, the the peak, the the double breasted pea coat, you mm -hmm. know, wool. Um, it was March, it was cold. They were beautiful uniforms. I couldn't imagine like, you know, armoring up in you know, that along with 30 pounds of gear, you know, right, right. I felt so sorry for him every, every night when he would, you know, go to work. I'm thinking, my gosh, he's carrying like a hundred <sighs> pounds on him, you know, I know. but so no, gets, they did not. So he gets shot in the right arm, you said? Yes. Okay. And so, so what happened after that? What happened well, that night? He had, I mean, you know, a nine millimeter at point blank range, you know, is said to be able to, you know, hurl an object of 250 pounds, you know, um, you know, so many feet when you're shot at point blank range. And you know, this as a law enforcement officer, his arm was really barely hanging on. So he was transported to the hospital. He was there for well over a month. They did a number of surgeries on him to try to graft bone from different parts of his body, all on his left side to put his arm back together to save his arm. And um, he was in traction and everything. And so eventually he was released from the hospital. He was on light duty. He had to continue to have surgeries. And consequently, you know, he had a, a left leg then that was, you know, not really at full capacity, a left hip that wasn't, his whole left side was compromised okay. just to, you know, put his arm back together. Right. Um, so he did return to the department, uh, believe it or not, they allowed him to go back on the street uh, for a time for about the next uh, five years. And then he went on the inside and worked in the special duty office and the records uh, you know, division and then finally retired. But he was never able, Tamara, I just want to just, you know, impress, you know, this, this upon everybody when people, and I really need to impress this upon everybody. When people hear that an officer sustained a gunshot wound in the arm, they think, oh, well, he's going to be just fine. Well, no, 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 that's not true. Okay. Um, I, I go back now, I was nine years old and mm -hmm. I go back now and I read the reports and I read the news articles and, you know, in which they say the officer's in good condition. No, he wasn't. He's, he was never in good condition after that. 
not ever, and oh. neither were we. Right, right. So, I mean, I, I can tell you that <clears throat> firsthand, I got to witness how the system works, okay? Mm-hmm. And it's unbelievable. It's emotional, and, and I start to tear up every time I tell this part of the story. But, you know, we were a family that listened to the police radio, as I explained to you. And we didn't watch television. My father worked um, 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. And they didn't call it mid-watch back then, but that's essentially what it was. It overlapped, you know, um, second and third shifts. Mm-hmm. And so we heard that here in Columbus, an officer involved anything, officer down, officer, you know, um, needs help is a 10-3 code. And I had already memorized all the 10 codes by the time I was five years old, you know, because we were just, we were that, you know, just that thick blue blood, you know, Mm -hmm. family. And so I heard the 10-3, my mom heard the 10-3 and we heard the area and we knew my dad worked in that area, but we didn't know it was him. Mm -hmm. And until the phone rings and my, I see my, I'm sitting at the kitchen table drawing, I'm nine right. and my mom picks up the phone. We've got the police radio on the back and, you know, on in the background, my mother drops to her knees literally oh. on the floor oh. in, in despair. Um, and then here comes our neighbor behind us barreling through our back door and our neighbor across the street from us barreling in our front door. And I'm watching all of this and it was so surreal. And then I happened to look up, our front door was open and we had a really nice storm door, but half of it was, you know, like a window. Mm -hmm. And I look up and then I see two officers. And so at nine, I'm trying to process all of this because it's just happening literally, you know, like within a couple of minutes. Um, It's just... For me, that part is fascinating. Okay. It's, it's, it's extremely emotional, but it's also fascinating because to sit back and watch it, we can watch it on television all day long, Mm -hmm. but to actually be involved in it and immersed in it, um, is just unbelievable. So I look up and, uh, Mary Lou Coleman was our neighbor across the street. And I said, Mary Lou, we, we, we have two officers at our door. Can somebody let them in? Because my mom, um, you know, the, our neighbor behind us, she was on the floor with her, you know, mm-hmm. and they didn't in 1972, Tamara, they would not let the family know to what degree the injury was or if the officer was even dead. And the reason for that was because if in the process of transport, the officer died, they didn't want to say he's alive, you know? Um, yeah. So we didn't know. Oh my and gosh. So my, that- mom, my mom has to leave, you know, because the officers are, are there to transport her to the hospital. Right. And we don't even know if my dad's dead or alive. Right, right. So um, about the point at which my mom left, is when I became unglued right? because I didn't know, you know, like my dad was my hero Mm -hmm. and I did not know. I'm so sorry. 
I get emotional no, when I tell this aspect this of the story. Fine, it's called real life. It's I wanted your story. Go ahead. It's okay. But that's when I became unglued, and mm-hmm. our neighbor to this day, we are still close with her. I I talked to her just the other day, um, and it, you know she was a, a a great source of comfort for me. You know, but at, by by this time it's now like eleven p.m. because my dad was shot at about 10 p.m. that night. And so she thought it best that, you know, I go to bed and I was supposed to have school the next day. It was on a Wednesday night. Um, Again, the folks that were victimized and burglarized, there were 10 families. Wow. Um, You know, (laughs) You know, they were, they too were just, you know, I mean, we we were all victims, you know. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And so she thought it best that I go to bed. Well, I went to bed, but, you know, all I could do is lie in bed and just listen to the phone ring, you know, constantly. And Mary Lou answering calls and trying to explain what happened until I finally heard, I don't know, by midnight, I would say that my dad was alive because I had to lie in bed and, 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 you know, just wonder at, you know, my little nine-year-old mind. Right. Right. Um, that sounds absolutely horrible. What well, you went my, through. My father did everything that he could to protect well, us, you know what I mean? And to, as a little girl to teach me certain things, like he, he loved boxing. And so he would take me to, just local matches and everything, but we love to watch, you know, the old Joe Frazier and, (laughs) and, and Muhammad Ali, you know, matches and then George Foreman. And, um, he took me to, you know, wrestling matches and all kinds of stuff. So, um, you know, I, I, I kind of felt like, you know, he tried to make me a a little tough or expose me to, to certain things like that. But at the same time, I was this little girl. And so of course he did everything that he could to protect me from the bad guys, you know? And now let me, uh, uh, not to take away from, from what you're talking about and what you're, what you're going through right now emotionally, but can we go back to the night of the incident? I want to know, did your father get a shot off? Didn't he he shoot the bad guy? He did. So so he shot Charles Hayes, correct? Correct. The guy that shot him. Correct. Okay. So my dad in, in in 1961 was the most sought after high school football player in the country um, and had earned 79 full ride football scholarships to the best or the universities with the best football programs. Now, um, I know the listeners are going to Google him right now. What's his name? Nick Cooper. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> and he went to Eastmore High School in Columbus. And so he, um, you know, had settled on the University of Tennessee. And then he felt this calling to be a police officer. Gotcha. He had every opportunity to go to the NFL. Um, in fact, a couple of his classmates did. So he left school and came home and was recruited and joined the Columbus Police Department. But um, I will tell you that, you know, again, going back to, you know, the shooting that night, it was his athletic ability. He, he could run like there was no tomorrow. So I used to, as I got older, 
um, I would say, and my and he would tell stories. You know, I would say, oh, that poor B. You know, uh, you know the the A S T A R D. I don't want to say because <laughs> I don't think you have the bleep. But I he would start telling a story, and I think, oh, that guy, he just didn't have a chance because my dad could run like lightning. You know, so when yeah, this guy took you know, Mister. I, I, I have a really hard time, by the way, using his name, okay? That's I fine. usually refer to him as the shooter or the that man guy, or whatever. Suspect. The bad guy suspect, mm-hmm. right? So when he took off running, he didn't have a chance, you know? Um, but the thing is, is my dad was running so fast, he literally, I mean, ran right into him. You know, that's how fast he was. But the but the guy already had, had his gun pulled, you know? So, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so he, he, so he shot, my father shot and he sees, oh, it's dark. Remember this Tamara and, and viewers try to, you know, or listeners try to uh, envision this. All my dad could see was shiny metal. So he takes his other arm. Okay. And grabs for the gun so that this man can't kill him. Right. Ugh. And, um, he grabs for it before he could get his 38, you know, out of his holster and they go to the ground. Um, and then got shot in the arm. Yeah. After he, yeah. And he's, he's literally got an arm that's just hanging and barely, you know, connected to his shoulder. And so a ground fight ensues and he was able to get a shot off that way. Um, but then he lost his gun in, in, in the process and the shooter picked it up and pointed it to his chest and was going to kill him. And, um, thankfully he didn't. So anyway, um, so but the, shot that my, the shot that my dad got off hit this man in the abdomen. Okay. I didn't know it until I began this quest to kind of figure out what happened that night that my dad's partner had already gotten two shots off on this guy when he encountered him in the backyard of the young couple who had come home from Bible study class that, 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 that night. Mm-hmm. And um, when, you know, my dad and his partner got the call they happened to be pulling, you know, or driving down the street when this car pulled up and it was this young couple. And when they pulled in their driveway, they knew when their dog wasn't barking that something was up and, and a miss. And it was these two guys that were actually in the backyard trying to get in their back sliding glass door. So my dad's partner took the back. My dad took the front and stayed with the young couple. And then shots were fired. Um, and so my dad's partner got off two shots. Well, when when Mr. Hayes grabbed my father's police issued 38 revolver and put it to his chest and told him he was going to kill him, he passed out from bleeding. So um, that's why my dad w- was still with us. You know, he's not now, but he passed away um, in December of 2013. And when I got the call from the hospital, and I went to the hospital. They told me that he had had a massive stroke on his left side, which left him paralyzed on his left side. And that likely that stroke was from all from his original gunshot injury and all the subsequent surgeries and all the metal that was in his body. Uh, how old was he when he passed in 2013? He was 71. Okay. But a I'm young sorry. 70. A young 71. Oh, yeah, no, thank you. I mean, for your loss. I, it's my your dad was, still. well, he was the type of guy that, 
you know how you attach immortality to certain people because Mm -hmm. you think these people are larger than life, you know? And that's always the way that I thought about him. So it was a shock, you know? Right, right. Now, okay. So, so your father goes to the hospital. You tell us what happens within the next month, all of his, um, you know, therapy and such. And so, so what happens to this bad guy that your father shot? What did you go to the hospital? Did he die? Was he alive? What? Tell oh, that story. no, he didn't die. Oh, hell, hell no, he didn't die. <laughs> yeah, uh, tell that story and tell me why he did not go to jail for this. So, okay. Tell that. So what happened was, um, I'm still trying to find out how many times this man was shot. My father shot him once. His partner got off at least a couple of rounds. I don't know how many, many. Okay. Um, so the, I'm going to, I'm going to pause you right there. So you're saying that you are still trying to piece all this together all these years later. Yeah. Uh, okay. I understand their, their CSI was probably not even CSI back then. They didn't have the ballistics that we do today. They didn't have the crime scene investigation techniques yes, that did. we do well, no, today. Not the techniques, no. Right. Not they, the techniques. Right. So, so how, so why are you, his daughter left after all these years to try to put this to try to piece this together. Why, why is that happening? That's, and why that's, wasn't it done that's back the, then? That's a $64,000 question, because let me go back to answering your first question, which yes. was why wasn't he arrested or yeah. was he or what? So he was served an arrest warrant. First of all, he was indicted by a grand jury on 14 felony counts of the burglaries, right? The burglaries and my father's shooting. Okay, good. Okay. Um, he was served an arrest warrant in the hospital. He was paralyzed. Oh, okay. 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 So instead of going to court, they bring the indictment and the arrest warrant and they, um, they say that they're going to let him out once he's released from the hospital on an OR bond. That's a, your own recognizance. That, that's like a get out of jail free mm-hmm. card. Absolutely. So, so he, this happens in Columbus, Ohio. He he takes up residency in Lexington, Kentucky. They allow him go, to even go out of state. They don't think he's a flight risk because he can't walk. Well, what they also did was to, and I'm still trying to figure this one out too. They negotiated on his behalf an 18-month inpatient residential treatment program. And within two weeks of his release of the hospital, and once he's at this facility, they were asking for his driver's license so that they could teach him how to drive a car. Now, Who's who they? Can, Who's they? Okay. Let me, yeah, let me qualify that. <laughs> the folks at this residential treatment program, um, two are head of the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. And they were asking the state of Ohio to relinquish his driver's license to them so that they could teach him to drive a vehicle with handicap controls. You know, like back in the day, they oh. weren't as sophisticated, you know, those yeah. those vehicles. But I, you know, I, you know, my first question is, well, why the hell would they want to teach a man who's been indicted on 14 felony counts how to drive? Because likely he's going to go to jail, right? Well, yeah, of course. He's waiting trial right now. And and, and the OR, the OR boggles my mind right now. I mean, I know that every law enforcement officer listening to this right now is probably really mad <laughs> right now because that OR, you do not get OR'd for shooting, for, Correct. for any shooting at all. <laughs> Correct. Correct. So what happened was 
he was taught how to drive. My father came home one day on from light duty and was extremely upset and said the city of Columbus had provided the car that this man had um, threatened to sue the city of Columbus and they negotiated to give him this car and the treatment facility used that car and taught him how to drive. And when the 18 months was up, Tamara, he rolled right off of that parking lot in that car and never came back to Columbus again. But he so, had, did he have a trial date set? Did he have a court date set? No, no, but. So, but that's what happens when you get OR. You get OR well, with, with strike the court that. date. Strike that. He did have a court date because the warrant that I found was for failure to appear. So, okay. yeah. Okay. So let, so, me, yeah. let me back that up. Say, yeah. There's no way you're going to get yeah. OR and not yeah. have a court date. Yeah. Okay. So he never goes to court, never shows up for court. No, and he runs the country and we're starts roaming the country. Right. In that car, and he starts committing more burglaries as his new getaway driver, as the new getaway driver. Wow. He he forms a new team. So how many years later did you finally start just investigating this on your own? Like, how old were you? You were nine when this happened. 44 years later. 44 years later. You're like, screw this. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get my answers myself. And you just right. decide to start Googling well, my, things. Well, my dad would never talk about this. Okay? okay. I can tell you like there were five times in my whole life until he passed away that he talked about this and that always raised really big red flags, but I never wanted him to relive the incident, mm-hmm. you know, over and over because there were times through the years that he exhibited weird behaviors that just were atypical, you know, for him. Um, so well, I, not atypical for a person that's gone through a shooting for crying well, out loud. <laughs> no, no, you're right. But I didn't understand that. Right. I do right. now, you yeah. know, but, um, at the time, seemed atypical, you know? So he passes in 2013 and, you know, um, I go, you know, I, I, you know, I go through three years of grief. I'm still grieving, but anyway, and then I thought, you know, I'll be damned. So I'm just going to figure out what happened because my dad's silence occurred. I know for a reason. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, as I've been piecing these, you know, parts of the puzzle together, I, I recognize that he had to have felt very invisible and that his service really did not matter because two different times throughout the 1970s, this man was rearrested in two different states. Governor's extradition warrants were issued. Officers are assigned to go pick him up and, and the, the warrants would get squashed. But that doesn't make any sense to me. No, it doesn't. And Um, so I'm trying, you know, with all my might, this has been a three and a half year journey for me and I'm still putting pieces of the puzzle together. Okay. Before you continue, let's take a quick break. And when we return, I want you to go into detail of, of what happened that day you decided I am going to find Charles Hayes. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Thanks Tamara. If you're enjoying the Real Life Podcast, I invite you to consider supporting it monetarily. Just 99 cents a month will go a long way to secure future podcasts. Where exactly does your money go? It pays the monthly fees to use the program to record the guests. I want to recognize and thank the following people for supporting the Real Life Podcast. Ron, Ben, Katie, Paul, K. 
Kelly, Anne, and Cami. So thank you for listening, and I hope you'll decide to support the Real Life Podcast. Just click on the podcast link that I post on Twitter and Facebook, then click on the box that reads support with a dollar sign. You're all amazing. See you next week. Are you interested in CSI or forensics? The Forensic Science Academy program has been recognized as the premier training program completely dedicated to students who are launching their forensic career. The Academy offers specialized hands-on training modules in basic and advanced crime scene investigation, forensic photography, fingerprint identification and classification, crime scene management, and coroner investigations. Instruction is offered in the form of weekend workshops, online courses, webinars, and seminars. Training at the Academy of Forensic Science will give students the competitive edge employers and agencies are looking for when hiring. Past graduates are now working as crime scene investigators, private investigators, forensic pathologists, coroner investigators, forensic nurses, forensic accountants, and even criminalists. The courses are taught by forensic professionals who are experts in the field and hold membership in the International Association for Identification and other professional forensic organizations. For more information, visit ForensicScienceAcademy.org. Again, that's ForensicScienceAcademy.org. Are you looking for Thin Blue Line gear? It's available on our website at thinbluelineforwomen.com. That's thinblueline, the number four, women.com. Show your support for law enforcement and get your Thin Blue Line gear today. Just click on shop at thinbluelineforwomen.com. We're back from break. Now, Lori, in 2016, I think that's what made you decide to take matters into your own hands, right? Right. And track, right. track down Charles Hayes. So tell me about that. Tell me the story of how you found him and what you did with that information. Well, I, you know, I had decided, you know, three years had gone by. We had settled all of my dad's, you know, you know, probate stuff and his estate and everything. And all of that was finalized. And I thought, okay, well, now is the time for me to go backwards and try to figure out, um, gosh, was this doctor right? Did he really pass away, you know, from his original shooting injury? And why didn't he talk about this? You know, my dad would come home, Tamara, and tell me the goriest stories. And I would just be sitting at the table, you know, with my, you know, my little you know, um, fists, you know, up against my chin, you know, like, Oh dad, please give me more, you know? <laughs> and so I was, I'm serious. Um, I believe you. and so, and, and the police radio and the, 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 you know, we only watch cop dramas. And so anyway, um, I thought, okay, well, let me figure this out. So I, I called the Columbus police department and I asked them if they could please, you know, start looking for records or what, what I needed to do to acquire them. Well, I got a call back from the person in charge of their records who said, well, you know, this happened so many years ago 
we, we found three, but everything else has been destroyed. And so they tried to give me this, you know, whole records retention, you know, schedule mm-hmm. um, thing. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. My dad's shooting was never resolved. I mean, nobody, I mean, he, this man didn't go to trial, you know, right. he, he's still on the lamb, you know? So um, I thought I'm not buying that BS. Okay. And there's no statute of limitations on this either. Correct. In 1972 in Ohio, we had no statute of limitations on any felony charges or any felony warrants. Okay. So that wasn't even an issue. Right. So I said, I asked if they would please mail me those three records. I wanted to see them. Okay. Um, meanwhile, I call the courts, I get the uh, indictment, you know, the indictments, I read those, I read the victims and everything. And, um, that's all I've got. Okay. So interestingly, when I received in the mail, the three records that the Columbus police department said, that's all they were in possession of. You're not going to believe this, but one of them was the damn warrant. It was the warrant for his arrest. And I thought, why wouldn't anybody that would pick up these records look and see this is a warrant. Okay. So I thought, well, I have to do something with this. All right. I, I can't just let this go. So I got, I got in contact with our, our prosecutor, our elected prosecutor. I mean, in some jurisdictions, they're called DAs in our jurisdiction. They're called, he's called a prosecutor. And yeah. And so I wrote him a, a, an email, Tamara, on a Friday afternoon at 4.30. Um, I'd left a message for him. I thought, you know, I'm never going to hear back from this guy. And at 10.30 that evening, he wrote me back. And he said, he, he's been our elected prosecutor for a number of years. And at the time that my dad was shot, I forget what he was doing. He might, he was, I think, working in a different, you know, office in the capacity of a, like a junior attorney. But he recalled my dad, of course, his high school football career, his college football career, and that he was a really good police officer. And so he went through, you know, electronically and looked and he said, you know, I don't see any reason why we can't go forward with this, but I, I, I will caution you about one thing. And that is because there were two incidences where he could have been, this man could have been apprehended in the state of Kentucky when he was arrested and the governor's extradition warrant was issued and nobody went to pick him up. And then in 1978, he was apprehended in Hartford, Connecticut. This guy drove all over the country. Um, and um, at that time, um, you know, we could have gone and gotten him then too, but we didn't. And I say we, meaning the state of Ohio. Mm-hmm. So he said the, the the only legal thing that we have going against us is that the courts could say that his right to a speedy trial was violated because there were two times that we could have gone and oh, gotten wow. him, but we failed to do our job in that regard. Oh, and that, frustrating. well, that therefore then means we legally prejudiced him. Well, you know, let me just play the violin, okay? <laughs> because as far as I'm concerned, if we made a mistake and didn't go get him, well, that just gave him that much more freedom, you know? So, um, we went through the process and what we had to do instead of, you know, and, and this is so, this is just so bizarre, but yeah, I had gone, started looking through the internet to, you know, to find him and everything. 
um, before I, I got the records. And, you know, it's just amazing what you can find on the internet. All you have to do is, now he was, he didn't vote, but his wife did. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you can go through voting records, you know, um, you can go through vital statistics and find out dates of birth or dates of death. And that's, those were the things that I used, you know. And the interesting thing, though, is that he used, um, his last name is Hayes, H-A-Y-S, but he changed the spelling of it and added an E in it. Oh, okay. So H-A-Y-E-S. So all the, you know, the few records that I had, when I'm looking for this man, I'm looking for a Charles H-A-Y-E-S, right? And I kept finding this guy in Dayton, Ohio, who had, and he originally was from Dayton, Ohio. And, um, but it was H-A-Y, let's see, H-A-Y-S. And so I'm thinking, well, this can't be. And Charles Hayes, I mean, that's kind of a common name, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So I'm thinking, I'm not finding the right person, you know? And then I went to Vital Statistics. He's not, you know, dead, not under H-A-Y-S, under H-A-Y-E-S. Um, I had gone on a number of different search engine sites and uncovered a, 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 a DOB, a date of birth. And I was certain that that part was right. I, I did a, a lot of researching on his family. I, I looked on social media sites. Um, I found, you know, his grandchildren. And um, I confirmed then that his name was actually spelled H-A-Y-S. So he had used the E because remember back then technology wasn't mm-hmm, what it is right. today. You can, yeah. you can spell your name any damn way you want to now, <laughs> yeah. but with the date of birth, you know, and, and, and a social, it doesn't matter how you spell your name, you know? So he used that to, to thwart off authorities, you know, and um, it worked in his favor, you know, a, a few times. Um, I don't know how, but it did. But anyway, the long and short of it is, is that, um, we had to go through a special proceeding before a judge to determine whether or not we could actually go to trial. And that was to see if in fact he was legally prejudiced and his right to his constitutional. Let me, let me, let me preface that because there's, there's, you know, you know, there's the, the, the constitutional right to a speedy trial. And then there's just uh you know, a state's right to a speedy trial. Okay, okay. But the, the, the judge ruled um, against us and said that his, constitutional right to a speedy trial had been violated. So So, so pretty much it's all done. Like it's, it's finished. You can't do anything else. I was harassed by his family who are members of the hell's angels. They, um, they purport to be related to Charles Manson. Now that Charles Manson is dead, I'm not so much worried, but, um, and I copied, you know, well, I'm not going to say that. Um, I have been privy to conversations that have been exchanged um, regarding their relation to Charles Manson. These are not nice people, you know. But what he did was he traveled up. He went from the south and he traveled up the eastern seaboard, seaboard and he wound up in a town called Warwick, Rhode Island, which any live PD fans um, – one of the the years they were on, I think the first one, um, believe it or not, I could not believe this, but they were traveling with the Warwick, Rhode Island Police Department. And I thought, who would figure? Because 40, or Rhode Island is like 43 miles in circumference, you know, <laughs> with, you know, with a dense population. But that's where he hit out for lots and lots and lots of years until 
he was the recipient of a house by virtue of a, an extended family member who um, had passed and left him a home in Dayton. And so he and his wife went back to Dayton and that's, that's where they were when I found him. And then I went, went through and, and started looking for records. So it sounds like everything that you have done, you have done and you've exhausted all of your avenues. Your remedies. Yeah. And, and you've exhausted all the courts as well. I mean, nothing else can be done. We're, it's, it's like case closed. Well, not really. Ex- ex- yeah. Except you are not emotionally case closed. You still have, you know, well, you, I, there's I'm no still, closure. Well, I'm you. still trying to find, you know, a f- few of the last records, like you mentioned ballistics and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, everybody kept telling me that, you know, what I had was what I had. Now, when, when our prosecutor got involved and, and, and I love that man, he is just to me, you know, um, he, he's very noble and, and full of honor. Um, the three records that I had turned into 103 records. So I'm really pissed at the police department for not doing its job further. You know, they tried to, um, tell me that it was, not an active case. Okay. Well, that's BS, Tamara, because it was an active case. Okay. So um, it remained an active case until we went, you know, and tried to adjudicate the case. So I am still trying to find records and, um, you know, they're, they're out there. I know they are because just recently within the last few months, um, there have been more found. So, so you're, well, I call him a district attorney, but you're calling him a prosecutor. Right. Is your prosecutor saying that if you do find more evidence, then you can reopen this case? I thought it was completely no, it's, against it's, it's, the it, constitution. It, 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 it's closed. Yeah. It's, it's closed. closed. It's so, closed. so you're doing this for your own emotional purposes at this point, right? Well, yes. I guess. Yes. Because, yes. And because, I mean, let's face it. Okay. While you know, the, the whole, you know, I don't have any more legal remedies as far as, you know, Mr. Hayes or anything. Um, I want to know why it is that, you know, the Columbus police department didn't want to cooperate with me. Um, wouldn't give me records, um, that it's taken me three years to still amass more records. And the few that I'm missing, um, I want to know where they are. And, um, yeah, so this isn't over for you. you it's you're still, over. you're still, on no, it's not trial. over because, because Tamara, I, you know, I could go into, but I'm not going to, I could go into some things and share with you that would blow, you know, the minds of everybody. Um, but there are still a few things that are missing that are huge holes. Okay. In this case, which would probably explain to, um, maybe that whole snowball effect of why this man wasn't apprehended um, when those governor's warrants were were, were issued right, for extradition. Right. So, um, so I still have gaping holes, a few, a couple, and mm-hmm. um, I'm gonna make sure they're filled in. Yeah, you 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 need some closure. Everybody does. It's human nature to want closure to anything. Absolutely. But, I mean, but even if it sounds like even if you get the not the emotional closure, but if you get the records that you need, it's still like nothing can be done still because it's, well, they can't reopen anything. No, but you know what I would like is once I get them and I, I, 
you know, because there's there there are some officers, you know, a, a, among this you know whole situation too who aren't exactly, um, you know, uh, or haven't been exactly, you know, f- free with information that they're privy to. Um, but once I get everything together and I fill in those holes, I am going to work to get my dad some kind of posthumous, um, you know, medal um, because he deserves it. Absolutely. And I want to, I want a public apology. And if, if, if for no other reason than that, then I will feel like my father's legacy wasn't one of being the, the guy that got shoved aside and nobody gave a damn about. And, you know, instead the, the, the perps rights were more important than, right. you know, my dad's service and everything that he went through mm-hmm. and eventually became discarded as far as I'm concerned. And they put him in a corner. I always describe it. And th- th- this is because this is the worst connotation that you can conjure up for an officer ever in your mind. But I always say they put him in a corner, you know, sharpening pencils. Well, mm-hmm. they really didn't literally, but figuratively they did, mm-hmm. you know. Because at the point at which he was no, of, of no longer value, you know, that's what they oftentimes do across the country, mm-hmm. you know, is dispose of these officers and I'll be damned. So, um, you know, I'm a member of the Wounded Blue um, Foundation. Um, I, I'm working with Randy Sutton to try to become uh, the family peer leader, meaning, you know, that any family members that go through, you know, their loved one's line of duty um, injury that's permanently disabling. I want to be there to help that family because there wasn't anybody there to help me. So that's, know? that's what, the, that's what your goal is right now then. And that is the other half of my goal besides getting my dad, what he deserved mm-hmm, then, mm-hmm. um, and still deserves now, which is a legacy of being right, right. a really good police officer who, who served and protected these people. And I am in contact with one of the victims, uh, the, 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 the couple, um, in whose yard these men were found and she wrote a letter to our local newspaper um, and found me and wanted to thank me because she explained how my dad saved her life and that of her husband's when he dove on top of them when gunfire was erupting in their backyard. Wow. So you are a spark of fire girl. Listen, <laughs> you are. I am my, I'm my father's daughter, you know, <laughs> and so I'm not one to give up, give in. Um, they they want me to go away. Okay, I'm sure. I'm sure. Now and you're going to write a book about all of this, right? I have been writing a book, Tamara. Good, 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 good. Yeah, you're going to have to keep me posted. Keep I would love to on this I would book love because to. I know there are a lot of people, a lot of listeners out there that want to read this book. It's you have an interesting story here. Now, I we don't have time to get into it, but I I later on want to want to talk to you about you know or hear about in your book about like the bullets and the fragments they found and anything crime scene related, like like where was the gun and you know all that stuff. So that's that that stuff intrigues me just because of my of course you're background. A yeah, your friend is expert. Well, <laughs> so, and, and and I'll be honest with you, all of that is another facet to this story mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that you personally would be fascinated by. But so would the audience too. Right, right. But it sounds like even though even if they had all of the correct evidence that they needed at the time, it doesn't matter because no one followed through with the warrants. Correct. No one followed through with anything. And then all this time goes by 
and now and now it's you know we're you know uh, the constitution and, 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 is well, more important than well, well i understand the constitution well is important. i understand not, the constitution too but I, can I you that. can you imagine though literally um you know a system that is is created to to you know to protect us but it didn't even protect the protector you know yeah right it did not and, protect the protector right right you're right and and so yeah, it's very sad it's very i can't imagine a police officer being shot i know and the and the perpetrator not being apprehended and right and charged and and spending time in jail right right and he you know where never he's gotten at. out of jail yeah. right but now another he, thing instead he got every privilege known to mankind another thing and we again we don't have time we're gonna have to have you on again but you know, your father was experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder after this shooting. Obviously, that's why he didn't talk about it so much. I mean, and that's prevalent today. We see that so much. Exactly. Today. And exactly. back then, back then they didn't have a debriefing. No. Sure. They didn't no. have chaplains at the scene. No. They didn't have peer support. They didn't have any of that in place back then. They expected that officer to buck up. Just it's, like we do now. Yeah, exactly. We've, we've gotten better and we've improved we, a lot. We have a long way to go. Oh, we have a long way to go. You're right. You're you're very right. I remember the term, and I know we're running out of time, but I remember the term my father used, which was, I said, Dad, why don't you go talk to somebody about this? And he said, because I would be labeled a loose cannon. Oh, that was his terminology for it cannon. and a loose cannon and nobody would want to, uh, you know, partner with me. Nobody oh. would have my back and I would be considered weak, you know, and my dad was, uh. you know, listen, remember he tough football player, oh, tough guy, you right. know, that kind of stuff. But listen, the, the bottom line is everybody has emotions, you know, of and course. you can be as tough as, you know, Ted on the outside and, and that's, usually the way I present myself. I'm like Teflon Donna, okay, is what I call myself. Um, but on the inside, let's face it, I've got a heart, you know, and a spirit that's broken. And have you even have you even done counseling needed for your heart? You were nine years old when this happened. When you saw your mom on the phone and dropped to her knees. I mean, I know you're gonna make me cry, but you were a little girl. Have you even come to terms with that and talked to anyone for your own emotional no, I just figure well, you know, through the passage of time that um, I'm so sorry. Gosh, I feel like a weak suck. Time um, does not heal all wounds. Talking I, about things heals wounds, and I, sharing your story heals wounds. And I need to. I need to go back to my Teflon Donna identity. <laughs> um, no, I haven't because I just figure, gosh, you know, this has been almost all my life. You know, um, how, how does one go back and try to, um, become whole again over the course of, you know, 40 plus, you know, over four decades? I don't know how you do that. I don't even think there's the best therapist in the world that could probably make me whole again. But what will make me whole again, Tamara, is to plug the holes, earn my father the, the, the medals that he deserves and serve other people and families through Randy Sutton's organization, the Wounded Blue Foundation. I'm a content writer for law enforcement today and to do those things to be of service in, in my dad's honor. And those are the things that can, can help me. You have just ended the podcast perfectly. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time. My thank pleasure. You for 
Thank you for everything that you're doing right now to, My pleasure. to bring this guy to justice, even though we can't physically bring the justice, right. but your heart, you're bringing your heart to justice and you're, you're trying to heal from that. Thank you so much for the work you you're doing. You're so welcome. You're, uh, you're amazing. You're a spark My of fire, pleasure. girl. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. That Thank you so much. We are going to look forward to your book. Thank you. Thanks for having me too, Tamara. You're so welcome. Really appreciate it. Thank you for your service and sacrifice. Oh, thank you. Thank you. For those of you who love dogs, you're going to want to join me next week for season two, episode one, when I talk with Chaplain Ron with Canines for Christ. Canines for Christ is an international Christian-based therapy ministry that uses ordinary people and their beloved dogs to share God's message of love, hope, kindness, and compassion to the community. I'll see you next week. The Real Life Podcast was recorded and is being made available by Anchor.fm and its affiliates solely for the informational and entertainment purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided and or expressed on the Real Life Podcast are entirely those of the host, guests, and callers, and are responsible for all show content and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the agencies and communities that the guests may serve. Some parts of the Real Life Podcast may contain adult content intended for people who are 18 years of age or older. Please listen responsibly.